I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about whatever interests me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend a beautifully written work on the book of Acts, and I talk about Paul's opening in his letter to the Romans. So I'm standing here in my office looking out over the lake in the middle of the campus situated right next to the seminary and uh, looking out on a overcast day where it looks like there's a thunderstorm brewing. It is massively humid outside. It's oppressive. And uh, I think we need a thunderstorm to come in uh, to sort of run through and just break the humidity. That'd feel really nice. After my uh, morning walk this morning, I was just drenched. It's pretty exhausting. Uh, and there's something wonderful about a summertime thunderstorm here in the Midwest. I know Sarah would be thrilled to have one. She loves thunderstorms. Uh, she'd be very happy, as would our front and back lawns. Um, some pretty exciting events in our lives these days. We had uh, some friends, Ann and Andy, had uh, their barn cat, had a bunch of kittens, and we took two of them off their hands, and uh, Sarah and I became parents again of twins. So we have two little kittens at home, uh, two brothers, flopping all over the place, wrestling, going wild, and uh, taking long naps. And uh, Sarah's thrilled to have those little personalities in the house. And it's always fun to have an injection of new life. We have not had pets. And uh, this last summer when our daughter was staying with us for uh, about two months time, she had her cat with her. And it was just really fun. It was really fun to have a little animal running around the house. And uh, so we thought, why not take the plunge? If there is a, a coming subsequent quarantine similar to last year, it would just be nice to have a couple of other personalities filling our house now that it's just Sarah and me uh, dwelling together, which is not so bad. Um, I'm all out of Mark volumes. Uh, I was very happy to send those out. And um, I ran out pretty quickly uh, earlier in the week. Very happy to send those off to people. Uh, the publisher uh, gave me loads of copies and I was able to give those to people that helped me with the project, that read drafts and all that kind of stuff, gave copies to my colleagues and um, had a bunch extra. So I'm very happy to, to send those out. And um, I'm also happy to give stuff away, especially stuff like that, because I, I really love how it turned out. Um, and I am happy with the stuff that I um, came to understand in the Gospel of Mark, and also the stuff that I said about it, applying it to the modern world and all that kind of thing, I believe in it. So I'm happy to send it out. And I, um, I don't ask for any money from anybody, pay for shipping costs and all that. I am very happy. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to pay for all that because I just, I'm wealthy beyond anything that I need. Recently, I had two completely full tubs of hummus in my fridge. If that's, if that is not ridiculously wealthy, I don't know what is. And, um, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm really blessed. I'm, I'm really lucky, uh, to just have so much money. And, uh, I was thinking about the kind of cultural, uh, capital and social capital that I have because of my wealth. It is really mind-blowing. If you think about the day-in, day-out life of people in this world and the day-in, day-out lives of, of just ordinary people for much of history, like what was possible? What did people imagine was possible to do uh, in, the, in the course of a day or a week or a month or a year? And um, I mean, relative to all that, it is insane. I feel like I live like a king. Um, it's really a bananas way of life. And the little things that we find to complain about are just, it's, it's just completely out of keeping 
with what life is like for most people and what life has been like for most people. I mean, just as an example of how good my life is and how um, obnoxious the amount of wealth we have, Sarah and I do this routinely, which is really, it's, it's obscene when you think about it. We will, several times a week, we will go down to another location in the town where we live. We'll, we'll, we will walk into a building that we have no ownership of. We don't even know any of the people in there. We'll just walk in and uninvited. And we'll just sit ourselves down and expect service. And uh, I mean, I have that kind of power where I can just say uh, to you know a representative of the establishment uh, in the building where I walked in, they will come over and ask me like, "Well, what do you, you know? What do you want?" And I will just say, "Set before me some shrimp tacos, Megan." And they do it. They bring these things out and they feed us and they do it happily, which is really incredible. It's just, it's a kind of insanity. Who could do that in the history of the world? I don't know, local regents or um, royalty. It's really nuts. In fact, I'm even able to control the climate in my house. It's really staggering. I live a really good life. I live a really, really good life. And um, anyway, as Bono said, you only truly own what you give away. So um, I'm always happy to send stuff out. Just to say, I apologize. Those went so fast. Uh, I had to say sorry to a lot of people. Um, just to repeat from last week, I uh, also have some papers that I'm very happy to send out. I wrote a couple of different papers on the narrative substructure of Romans, and those kind of took a couple of different forms. One was a presentation I gave uh, at an academic conference tracing uh, the narrative of the body as it goes through Romans. And the other one was sort of taking that whole approach and applying it to a theology of sport, which was kind of a fun exercise. So anyway, happy to give my stuff away. Just let me know. Send me an email. Um, earlier in the week, or I think it was last week, I was uh, had a conversation with Jennifer uh graduate of the seminary and now a colleague of mine. Um, and, and she would mention some things about prophetic speech or about, you know, the function of prophets in the church and about how um, resistant churches are to hearing prophetic speech. And which I totally agree uh, with her point, but that got me thinking about what is prophetic speech. And um, I don't think that this is really understood all that well. Uh, a prophetic prophetic voice or a prophetic figure or prophetic speech is um, sort of when God speaks to his people in a confrontational manner or in a note of rebuke, uh, calling out injustice, uh, injustice that is found among God's people, um, idolatrous desires, wrong desires, and actual social practices that foster oppression or that are oppressive and that marginalize or that exclude. And um, the prophets have a pretty big role to play in biblical Israel, and um, they're, they're often ignored, or I should, perhaps in, in my inherited Christian tradition, they were sort of read for the wrong reasons to try to sort of figure out some future timetable or something like that, instead of actually um, being heard as voices that confront structures of religious cultures that are unjust and that um, don't look out for the poor, the orphan, and the widow, which are massive, massive priorities to God as laid out in Torah. So th there are different voices uh, with which God speaks to his people. There's the priestly voice, which is a voice of blessing. It's it's sort of the the figure through whom God says to his people, I love you. You're blessed. I mean to... Uh, to uh, foster your flourishing in this world. You're loved by God. That's the priestly voice. The prophetic voice is how God confronts his people and addresses injustices that they have fallen into or that they've cultivated. Um, 
so just a couple of thoughts about prophetic speech in the people of God. Um, first thing, the first thing is prophets usually get killed. I mean, this is what Jesus said sarcastically uh, to his audience there in Jerusalem. You know, which of the prophets did you not kill? So when the prophets spoke in the in the Old Testament in, uh, to biblical Israel, uh, when John the Baptist spoke, he's a prophetic figure. When Jesus spoke prophetically, and he, among many things, I mean, Jesus is many things in the narratives of the New Testament, but he's a prophet for sure. And um, a prophet like Stephen in Acts 7. Whenever prophets speak to the people of God, the people of God rise up and kill the prophets. That's how it goes. Prophetic speech costs your life. That is just um, one of the resounding notes that is struck in Scripture. Uh, because prophetic speech is aimed at power and it's aimed at powerful interests, and it's aimed at unjust economic practices. And um, when people who have power are exposed and their, their unjust practices are exposed to, the, to God's searching light, uh, powerful interests retaliate, and they do so fatally. Um, another thing I was thinking about with re regard to prophetic speech is that prophetic speech uh, is not aimed at rebuking the people of God because they don't pray enough or because they're not doing enough for God. In fact, if when preachers call out to God's people sort of sounding that note, like you need to pray more, you need to evangelize more, that sort of stuff, uh, you need to cultivate more private piety. I guess I would say it that way. When, when um, people call out the people of God when figures call out the people of God for not practicing enough private piety, that is not prophetic speech. That's what Pharisees did in the Gospels. And there's a sense in which people loved and honored them for it. There's something about those sorts of messages that is actually safe because it, it sort of portrays the speaker as if they're talking tough to God's people, uh, speaking up for devotion to God um, or to advocate a private piety. But that's not prophetic speech because that kind of plays into, um, in fact, uh, prophetic speech is not really ever aimed at private piety. It's aimed at public structures. It's aimed at the structural life of the corporate people of God and how their corporate structures are unjust and foster oppression and exclusion. Um, I mean, when pastors nowadays, um, you know, berate people, um, perhaps berate their churches for not being devoted to God enough, not praying enough, not evangelizing enough. These are sort of the common, uh, common tropes. Um, they end up sort of shaming people into silence. And there's a, there's a way that whoever speaks to God's people that way, they portray themselves as holier than thou. It's like a way of asserting personal power. Um, you know, I'm the one that has everything sorted out. I'm the one with the private piety. Y'all are the ones who have to cultivate more private piety. You need to be praying more. You need to be reading your Bible more. You need to be doing your devotions more regularly or something like that, whatever. That's not prophetic speech. Prophetic speech calls out public, um, really, the lack of genuine piety because piety or worship uh, for biblical Israel was their social practices. Uh, when Israel was idolatrous, it wasn't merely that they were doing worship wrong. Um, it's that they were involved in practices of oppression and exclusion and injustice, economic injustice, political injustice, pra social practices that were all messed up. Um, because worship, holistic worship, is always embodied in some way. It's embodied through social practices. So the worship of the God of Israel, the piety uh, that God wanted— uh, was not gathering for praise services. It was doing justice publicly. So um, when prophets call out the corporate people of God for having structures, for being arranged socially into structures that are unjust, the prophet is putting himself on the line. Um, but simply scolding people or shaming people for lack of private devotion, that's not prophetic speech. That's just sort of um, being scoldy or ranty.
in some way. Um, also, another another thing about prophetic speech. Prophetic speech is not aimed at people out there. I mean, there are, there are a lot of sort of popular preachers um, who will, uh, it, it appears that they're sort of being prophetic or being, you know, tough on sin or something like that. And they're speaking to their audience about people who are not in their audience. Those people, you know, liberals or sinners or sexually deviant or whatever it is, you know, that's another way of playing to the audience. It sort of consolidates the boundaries of a community and it makes the hearers actually feel safe. Yeah, we're not like those people. We're, we're here on the inside. We're the good ones. The ones who are outside are clearly the bad ones. That is not prophetic speech. That's not how God talks to his people. There are times in the prophets when the prophets will um, issue uh, some kind of denunciation of another country or another king, Babylon or Egypt or whatever. And often the reason for that is because the prophet's audience, Israel, um, is looking to Egypt or is looking to another nation uh, for some kind of rescue or salvation from an imminent threat. So again, it is, it is um, the prophet is calling out God's people for putting their hope in the wrong place. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Another thing about prophetic speech is that prophetic speech is done by outsiders, people who are outside the institutions of power. You see this in the beginning of um, uh, Luke, where you've got an insider, Zacharias, who's a priest, and his um, just rascally outsider, wild-haired son, John, John the Baptist. And um, Zacharias is the ultimate insider. He's in the halls of power. And his son is the ultimate outsider. He is calling people away uh, out into the desert to be baptized, to become part of the group that is specially devoted to God, to await God's, uh, the arrival of God in the person of Jesus. And so John is, he's a wild-haired outsider. And um, it's really only, only outsiders that can speak prophetically to institutions because they don't have anything to lose. People who are institutional stakeholders or who uh, live off the institution, I mean, someone like me, uh, I can't really have a prophetic voice because um, people who belong to institutions will at some point hold back. Uh, it's really, really tough to sort of risk everything and go out on a limb and say the really threatening thing uh, because institutions will strike back. They will, they don't like that. Institutions that have something uh, that they're trying to preserve, if it's power or prestige or whatever, don't like to listen to prophetic speech. And when they uh, hear it, they will respond. And um, as we see in the pages of biblical or Old Testament with biblical Israel, and then the first century culture to which Jesus arrived, um, it's usually a fatal response. Uh, so there's a cost to prophetic speech. Uh, so prophetic speech is aimed at unjust social practices, unjust economic practices. And um, I think that the church can play this role. The church um, ought to be playing this role as um, calling out unjust social structures in our wider culture and advocating on, on behalf of those who are oppressed and excluded and marginalized, mistreated, um, but it's a sad reality that in many cases, churches have become allied with power and get cozy with power or get invested um, in pursuits of cultural prestige and self-protection. And we've lost our prophetic voice. Um, and we end up uh, sort of taking tough stands and kind of comforting ourselves that we're doing that. We, we, we do that against people who are already marginalized, against people who already have no cultural voice. Um, we speak and take tough stands against the weak and the mistreated, and we don't put ourselves on the line speaking truth to power, which is um, it's a tragedy. It's, it's a real tragedy. And um, there's, there's a really rich tradition, and we, and we see this embodied in a number of figures today, 
but uh, in the historic black church in America, there are a number of prophetic figures, many prophetic figures that do speak truth to power because in so many ways they have been um, marginalized and they are the outsiders. They have nothing to lose because they've been, so much has been taken from them. So for my part, um, I think it's, I think the church would be wise to actually cultivate prophetic voices. Listen, look for prophetic voices. Um, those voices that are going to hold a mirror up to us and show us who we, who we really are. Uh, we really need to see that if we believe in the hopefulness of an ongoing communal practice of repentance, lifelong, generations long, always turning away from the ways of death and destruction, always turning toward the ways of life, always putting off the old corrupt humanity, always putting on Christ and the practices that embody uh, knowing and loving Jesus Christ. If that's our interest and we see that as a hopeful prospect, we will look for and listen to prophetic voices because they'll show us our corruptions. And it won't be fun. It won't be comfortable. Um, it won't be a good church growth strategy um, at all, at all. But I think it is um, a measure of the extent to which uh, many of our churches are actually caught up in, in um, corrupted desires, desires for uh, social approval, pr for prestige, for growth, for institutional health. It's a sign um, of how compromised we are that we don't actually um, not only tolerate prophetic voices, but look for them, center them, listen to them, and then do the hard work of paying close attention to what they've said and making social adjustments in accord with that. So anyway, prophetic speech, just some thoughts. John, Jesus, and Stephen, they called out the powerful and it got him killed. And um, prophetic speech is really, it's so hopeful. It is so hopeful. Um, keep in mind that throughout the prophets, there are promises made. There, there's just so much promise. If you would turn, if you would begin doing justice. So um, those calls to repent come with the offer of promise and of enjoying the life of God among the people of God and enjoying uh, experiences of flourishing. So anyway, probably lots more to say about prophetic speech. But uh, anyway, I just appreciate that conversation, Jennifer, because it just it was sort of provocative for some uh, good reflections on all of that. I want to tell you about a book. It's called World Upside Down, Reading Acts in the Greco-Roman Age, and it's written by Kevin Rowe, published by Oxford University Press. Kevin Rowe is the George Washington Ivy Distinguished Professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School. And this is seriously one of the most beautifully written books I've ever read. It's an absolutely brilliant treatment of Acts as a narrative, and he situates that narrative within the Greco-Roman world, engaging an impressive range of ancient literature contemporaneous with Acts. It's rare that a New Testament scholar would have such a masterful command of the biblical text and the ancient literature, but Rowe is a rare New Testament scholar. He argues that Luke does not have an apologetic purpose in writing Acts. That is, he's not writing to defend the Christian movement to outsiders, nor is he writing to explain how it is that the Christian movement could blend well with the Roman Empire. Luke, rather, writes for a Christian audience, and his aim is that of culture formation. That is, Luke directs his reader's attention to the manner in which the knowledge of God is instantiated or embodied in the life of Christian communities. The knowledge of God, according to Rowe, is a community that functions as an utterly unique body politic. In the first stage of his argument, Rowe describes how the worship of the Christian God directly confronts all forms of pagan religious behavior. Because day-to-day -day life patterns are the embodiments of religious belief, the holistic Christian way of life, socially, economically, and politically, stands utterly unique in the Greco-Roman world and is incommensurate with any other way of life. The inevitable collision 
between Christian communities and their surrounding cultural contexts arises from the breach between God and his world. Worship of the one true God, that is, the holistic way of life of God's people, will inevitably confront and collide with forms of life that embody idolatry and ignorance, resulting in cultural destabilization. And that destabilization occurred wherever the church spread in Acts. That was the accusation against Paul and Silas in Thessalonica in Acts 17. These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here. This effect of the Christian mission is not because of any subversive or seditious impulse, however. In fact, when Roman officials have opportunity to rule on leaders of the Christian movement in Acts, they judge in their favor, finding no fault with them. This is so because Paul and his crowd preached the resurrection of the dead Jesus, not the treasonous overthrow of Rome. We have then this tension. Christians proclaim repentance unto an alternative form of life, destabilizing established cultural patterns. At the same time, however, they eschew treason and sedition and do not seek to gain political power nor march on Rome. This tension, as Roe demonstrates in chapter 4, is the necessary correlate of the lordship of Jesus and the, uh, the communal performance of this reality. That is to say, when Christian communities embody the reality of the resurrected Lord Jesus, that is, the holistic worship of God as the body of Christ on earth, two things occur. A collision with idolatrous forms of life is inevitable, and a resistance of the temptation to grab for power. As I said, this is a work of impressive scholarship. Roe engages the secondary literature on Acts and an astonishing range of Greco-Roman sources without producing prose that bogs down. Indeed, it is beautifully written. Roe has also given a wonderful gift to the church. Pastors preaching through Acts will do very well to begin with this volume as it provides a compelling vision of ecclesial life as the covenanted community of alternative and life-giving practices that bears witness to the God who raised Jesus from the dead. His articulation of this reality fires the imagination with possibilities for cultivating contemporary practices that will confront the world and its idolatries, and it provides wisdom for resisting the temptation to grab for political power, a temptation to which so many Christians in America have fallen prey. As I said, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It's called World Upside Down, Reading Acts in the Greco-Roman Age, and it's written by Cavan Rowe published by Oxford University Press. Get it, as always, from an independent bookstore. So my intention in the last episode was to get this whole kind of study of Romans uh, going and to keep it moving by uh, starting with where Paul's argument begins in 118 to 32. And I meant to handle that all in one episode or to talk about that at one time. But um, considering how important it is to talk about the narrative substructure of the entire letter, uh, that took a little bit longer than I had imagined. Uh, yes, it's no surprise to me that I'm long-winded, and that's sort of how it goes. Uh, I've accepted it. Uh, I'm circumlocutive, perhaps. I know I take a long time to sort of unravel some thoughts, unfurl my ruminations. Um, so in this episode, I want to talk about 118 to 32 and talk about some of the fe uh, features of the text and facets of Paul's argument. And just to say that you can't really talk about this passage without keeping in mind the immediate target, the immediate goal of where Paul is going, and that is to one. This is all a setup. What Paul is doing is baiting the weak, the group that is in the Roman house churches, the network of house churches that, um, in my view, are Gentiles who have, who imagine that the way to embody the worship of the one true God in Christ is to actually become Jewish, to adopt a Jewish ethnicity and to identify fully in that way, which would have been a massive upheaval that would, in, would have included like festivals and a new calendar, new food preparation, new diet, everything. And so this is um, massively upsetting to uh, a network of house churches like this. And um, they are sort of justifying their way of seeing things by 
um, adopting typical Jewish attitudes that would be found in the first century with regard to non-Jewish peoples. And um, I may have said this before, we have to be very, very careful anytime we talk about uh, first century Jewish sort of notions and uh, the lay of the land, to just be very, very careful how we talk about these things um, so that we are always being respectful of Jewish people uh, currently, but also being very respectful of Jewish people in the ancient world, uh, just to note that. Um, but uh, so 118 to 32 is Paul sort of uh, seeking to arouse their sentiments and to arouse their uh, judgmental sort of, well, to arouse their judgmentalism uh, over against the strong, uh, that group of Gentiles who does not imagine that it has to become Jewish in order to be fully worshiping the one true God in Christ. And um, all of that is in order to sort of turn on them in 2-1 to confront them for being judgmental, for passing judgment on their uh, fellow believers in Christ, their their siblings in the faith. And I'd mentioned this before that... Um, 118 to 32 has loads of resonances with uh, the, a Jewish text, Wisdom of Solomon, which um, sort of is, is reflective. There are notes in that text that are reflective of the notion that the non-Jewish peoples are sort of hopelessly mired in idolatry, and there's no hope of their salvation. There's only the expectation of their judgment. Whereas for uh, sinning Jewish people, there's hope for repentance and for confession of sin and for forgiveness. And um, I think that this is a major reason why 118 to 32 sounds so much like that text, because Paul is baiting the weak. And um, so this is not sort of a clinical analysis on Paul's part of what unbelieving people are like. This is rhetorically charged. It's... Um, I don't want to say it's overstated, but yeah, it's it's kind of overstated. It's it's a it's a little bit obnoxious, so that um, Paul can demonstrate to the weak that they are really in the exactly the same boat as the strong. They're all sort of together in humanity that has gone off the rails, and ultimately that's all right because being in Christ means that you're part of the people whom God has set right. So keeping in mind that this is a setup, um, Paul begins by saying that wrath is being poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness injustice. That is, the, the Greek term adikia uh, is often translated unrighteousness, but it's, it's the same term for injustice, or I should say unrighteousness in the Old and New Testaments is the same thing as injustice. And I wanted to make that point because I think that one of the inherited assumptions on the part of English speakers and modern Christians is that, you know, righteousness has everything to do with sort of personal practices or like, you know, private piety or something like that. Someone can be a righteous person um, that has everything to do with their internal disposition and their private piety. Whereas in the Old and New Testaments, that's completely a public reality. So um, to be dikaios, that is righteous, is to be somebody who is fair in their dealings, who, um, who's a person of justice, a person of God's justice. And to be mired or caught in adikia, um, adikia indicates injustice. Wrath is being poured out against injustice. So um, Paul kind of starts this off by, you know, kind of celebrating along with the week that wrath, the wrath of God is being poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and, and uh, injustice or unrighteousness. Um, all those people who suppress the truth in adikia, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness or injustice. And um, I don't see uh, the truth here. I don't think that this is objective truth. This is not like um, truths that can be known. I think that there's something different going on here where truth is something more like um, something more like faithfulness, actually. And what Paul is getting at here is the role of humanity within creation. Humanity was supposed to be, according to God's design, 
um, basically the truth of God in the world. Like that's a role that humanity was supposed to perform. Um, and if you think about truth in sort of an old English sense, like troth, you know, when you when a person gets married, they betroth, they entrust they themselves, they give you you pledge one another your troth. Um, that's more like what's happening here. Um, what is going on is that you know the the sort of the the trust or the, the pledging of troth to the world uh, on behalf of God was supposed to be embodied by humanity um, representing God within the world as humanity oversaw the spread of Shalom and the furthering of God's reign throughout creation God's truth would be seen but that is being held back it's being sort of um, hemmed in or suppressed pushed down held back and so um, and that's happening in adikia that is injustice so humanity um is not reflecting god within creation and god's sovereign kingship is transcending kingship but is rather destroying humanity and creation like humanity is destroying itself and one another um and like i said adikia is a relational public social reality it's not that uh, we're kind of pressing this down in our hearts and not, you know, loving God like we should with our emotions or with our internal dispositions. This has everything to do with what humanity is doing and has not done publicly. And um, Paul goes on to say that humanity is responsible for knowing God because he's revealed himself to humanity. And this is a note that is struck repeatedly in Wisdom of Solomon. They should have known if they would have just looked at creation, they would have been able to sort of make their way from the stuff that you can see to the reality that there is a creator. So they're responsible. They're without excuse. So um, like I said, that note is struck in Wisdom of Solomon. You can see Paul just rousing uh, the judgmentalism of the weak here um, as if they're listening in on this at the start of the letter and like, yeah, not only are they mired in idolatry and unrighteousness, they're responsible. They know. So anyway, Paul's doing his job of fanning the flames here of judgmentalism. So they are um, without excuse because they did not glorify God as God or give him thanks. And again, this this all the language here has to do with the original design of humanity to be the glory of God within the world. That was humanity's call as image of God. And like I said before, Genesis 1 and 2 uses image of God language, and that has everything to do with rulership over creation and uh, rulership over creatures in the world, animals and creepy crawly things. Um, and Psalm 8 associates those activities with being with God crowning humanity with glory and honor. So um, to glorify God and give him thanks would have looked like living a truly human life. That is to be the glory of God through overseeing um, the spread of shalom throughout the world and just caring for creation. They didn't do that. Rather, professing to be wise, they became fools. Um, that is, they sort of lived within the world without taking God's counsel uh, into consideration and sort of knowing God in their lives, uh, rejecting the rejecting God's wisdom, but relying on their own wisdom. I think there are echoes. Not all Roman scholars see this, but I think that there are strong echoes of um, the Adam narrative, Adam and Eve, where uh, the humans, the first humans, don't rely on God's wisdom, but sort of process everything according to their own wisdom. And in doing all of that, they changed the glory of the immortal God for another image. And this is a twice repeated um, note, this change or exchange. I am playing with this thought um, that it's, it's more of a change and not an exchange. I don't think it's a, an, an exchange of one thing for another. Um, I, I think this is something more like an alteration or a perversion or a corruption, more of a change. That is, um, and what has changed 
is the human I, it, the identity of humanity, not sort of the object of worship. And what I mean by that is, um, I think what Paul's doing here is noting how it is that humanity stopped identifying itself um, as image of the creator God in the world and began identifying itself as the image of something else within creation. So this is not taking you know God off the pedestal in the temple and no longer giving him worship and putting some other creature on the pedestal and saying, we're now going to give that our worship. I don't think that that's what's happening. That's not that kind of an exchange. Idolatry in, uh, in the prophets is a way for Israel to say, um, the one that we are worshiping is the one that gives us our identity. It's the one that is greater than us. So to worship the one true creator God that is unseen um, gives us our dignity. That is this, this creating outside of creation entity. Um, yeah, it, it sort of loads us up with, with, uh, with dignity. If we say that the thing that is greater than us is this rock that we've carved or this piece of wood that we've carved, that degrades humanity. That's a way of saying some lifeless thing and some uh, dumb thing, something that doesn't speak or act or create or anything, that dumb thing is the thing that is greater than me. I mean, that is a, that's completely degrading. But if we say that the, uh, the, the transcendent king, uh, the creator of all of this, is the one who, whose image we bear, that's dignifying. So the change is a change in, in human identity. We are no longer image of that. We are now image of this. So because of that, God gave them up. God gave up humanity because humanity did that. God let them go. I think that that's more of the notion here. Um, the notion here is not something like giving them over to judgment, um, but this is God letting humanity go to their own desires, letting them go the course that they want to go on. And it's a grievous thing because that is, um, I mean, in the narrative of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and well, Genesis 1 to 11, humanity is given up to a course of just complete chaos and uh, destruction. Um yeah, God had called humanity to oversee the spread of shalom and to push back the, uh, the boundaries of the garden so that more and more of creation uh, became less chaotic and disordered and more characterized by God's order of flourishing. But humanity sided with chaos and sided with um, barrenness. And because of that, um, they got it. God let them go to what they wanted. And what he gave them up to, oh, oh, let me just make a note here. Um, this is this handing over or God giving them up. Um, this is the story of humanity writ large. This is not the story of this or that individual person. I've heard this text sort of used with reference to an individual like, well, you know, God's going to give you up to your own desires, or God's handing you over, or something like that, or God handed over that person. That is a misuse of this text. This is this is not at all what's happening. Um, certainly, in our own micro stories, you know, uh, you know, you go your own way, live a chaotic life, you may reap, um, you know, the dire consequences of that. But it's not the case that in sort of individuals' lives, God hands people over. There's nothing in um, there's nothing in this text that indicates that whatsoever, and I always think it's very dangerous when we look at somebody else's life and imagine that we can sort of narrate what God is or isn't doing in their lives. We'll we'll typically work from our own assumptions and prejudices, and we're not none of us have a portal into the heavens to know what God is or isn't doing. Anyway, and that assumes a lot of other things about God that are, I think, problematic. What God gave them up unto is, um, by the way, that occurs three times, the given up. And I think 
I'm trying to think about where I read this recently. I don't think these are like subsequent steps. I think that what Paul's doing here is just repeating. These are sort of three uh, cycles of stating the same thing. Um, These aren't a bunch of different things that are going on. But God handed them over unto uncleanness of the dishonoring of their bodies. And what I think is really interesting here is Paul's use of uh, uncleanness. This is really... This is like worship vocabulary. It's it's temple vocabulary. And I think that there is loads going on with temple as sort of a consistent theme that that pops up. It's sort of a lens. It's it's one of the dominant biblical theological lenses that uh, is traced the whole way through the entirety of Scripture. But I think it shows up as sort of a central narrative thread of Romans as well. Because you cannot tell the story of humanity without telling the story of God's temple, because God's temple is all of creation. And just like you go into um, temples in the ancient world and you see the image of the unseen God, um, in all of creation that is God's temple, humanity is the image of the unseen God. And so this is an indication of the corruption of temple space. And there, there's some sense in which humanity as image of God is given over to uncleanness, and the problem, or part of the problem, that God solves in Christ is cleansing temple space. So what went wrong when humanity rebelled against God and when they changed their identity as no longer being in the image of the one true creator God, is that they polluted creation as God's temple space. It's now polluted. It has to be cleaned up. And that's part of what God does it um, in Christ and by the Spirit. And Paul sort of hints at that, uh, more than hints at it. He talks about it in uh, Romans 8, which is really fascinating. But that's a problem. And of course, uncleanness makes people uh, unfit for worship. So humanity, having polluted temple space, there's like this, to be unclean is to be unfit for worship and to be far from God. Um, unclean people couldn't come near the temple. So this is uh, also a depiction of how it is that humanity is now distanced from God. And you can imagine that the weak that are hearing Paul's rhetoric here, they're looking over at the strong or thinking about the strong and then other house church thinking, yeah, that's right. We're the ones who are near. They're the ones who are far. They're excluded from worship because they are mired in uncleanness. Um, Again, the, rep, the second appearance here of they change the truth of God by the lie. I think that's a better translation because it's a dative. It's not um, the um, uh, preposition there is not. It can be translated exchange the truth of God for a lie, but it can also be translated they changed the truth of God by the lie. And I think that that's a better way of seeing what Paul is doing here. Uh, humanity bought the lie that they are not in the image, that they are not the image of the unseen creator God. And because of that, they changed the truth. That is, they are not sort of embodying God's faithfulness and commitment to creation in the world by cultivating and caring for creation. And um, they now see themselves as image of something within creation. That's the lie, and so that's a perversion of human identity. Uh, Interesting couplet here where uh, Paul says that they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. These are all expressions getting at the same reality. Humanity was supposed to worship and serve the creator, and that is priestly language, um, which is interesting because priestly language also shows up uh, throughout the rest of Romans as God restores human worship in Christ. But it also shows up in Genesis 2.15. And there's a couplet there that uses priestly language, that um, the first humans were called to cultivate and keep the garden, to guard and to keep. That's language that shows up later um, in priestly passages. And what is interesting is this is yet another lens to look at the human. The the first humans were to do priestly work on God's behalf. 
um, that is sort of going into temple space, which was you know, in the garden, to go out beyond the garden and to bring God's order of flourishing where there was disorder or non, non-order or, or space that was not yet ordered. So this sees the human task of caring for creation, um, yeah, as, as a priestly task, as worship. And what is going on with humanity is we are now serving something within creation, whatever it is, a human king, a reptile, um, you know, a nation's cause or the pride of a nation or the whatever it could be, um, our local cause, the cause of our local group, whatever it is that we are, that humans have sort of chosen to serve or do priestly work on behalf of, fill in the blank. So another appearance in 126 and 27 of God giving up. So again, sort of let, letting humanity go. And all of the, these expressions, God giving up, um, kind of indicate that at creation, God indeed commissions humanity to the joyful task of um, subduing creation, bringing order to what is not yet ordered. It, it sort of is a window into the posture that God takes when he commissions humanity to do this. It's, it's less of a command and more of a commission. And it's even more of like an invitation. God regards humanity with this posture of invitation, like he's created this amazing environment that is you know, characterized by mega, super plenty and way more is here than we need. And the commission is, and the invitation is rule over it and bring forth its flourishing and enjoy it. And when humanity chooses to not do that, but to side with chaos, because God is in this posture of invitation, he doesn't stop humanity from doing that. Um, He remains God. Because to be God is to have that sort of posture toward humanity of invitation, um, something more like commission, not a, a commanding, um, super bossy, impetuous father, something like that. And here in uh, 126 and 27, the giving up uh, has to do with the alteration of human sexuality with uh, women and men now engaging in um, the perversion of sexual relations, bodily perversions. And again, it's just important to note here that Paul is speaking from his inherited Jewish perspective. And from that point of view, the descent of the Gentile world into idolatry resulted in sexual perversion. You can see that in Wisdom of Solomon. So again, Paul is adopting this critique in order to arouse the judgmental passion among the weak in the Roman churches against the strong. So um, there, there's a rhetorical, a rhetorically charged and rhetorically directed reason that Paul mentions this. And I'll have more to say about that uh, in, in just a minute. So in 1, uh, 20 to 32, Paul repeats the giving up of humanity again to an unfit mind, to do all sorts of things that are not fitting for humanity. And at the head of that list, and sometimes in lists like this, the first item is sort of the big head, and then everything is sort of oriented and listed um, kind of underneath that. I think that this is one of those situations where that would make good sense. Um, And again, at the head of this list is adikia, injustice, also often translated unrighteousness. But Adikia. And repeating that because the condition of humanity in adikia, that is the the alpha there, is um, privative. So not dikia. Um, because the dik, if you just imagine transliterated D-I-K, the dik word group uh, has everything to do with righteousness or, or justice. Dikaiazo is the verb for uh, justify, to justify. Uh, Dikaiasune is righteousness or justice. And a dikaios is just or righteous. So it's, and that is precisely what God reverses in the gospel. 
the condition of humanity in adikia. And he reverses that by dikaiazo-ing humanity, justifying humanity, making righteous, uh, basically fixing or rectifying is probably the best translation of uh, thinking about justification. So um, I'm just mentioning adikia a lot because it's really important to understand that the condition of humanity is that humanity is stuck in injustice. And that is all, as I said before, relational. Look at all the behaviors that are listed. Um, humanity are gossips, slanderers, unfaithful people. They don't keep promises, disobedient to parents, malicious. I mean, it, you know, these are all dynamics that are social. And the problem is that humanity is caught in social and public and relational injustice. Again, back to something that I've mentioned a number of times previously on this podcast, the importance of understanding the gospel in terms of God's creation of social justice, God's creation of a body of people that embody God's social justice. Because what has gone wrong with humanity is that they are stuck in social injustice. And so that is precisely the problem um, that God fixes in the gospel. And it's important to keep in mind that Paul portrays the problem with all of humanity as being mired or stuck in adikia, um, because in Romans 1 to 3, before Paul sort of um, ponders the solution to things in 3.21 to 26, um, <clears throat> it's not merely the case that everybody is a sinner, and it's not merely the case that everybody has sinned. Um, the contours of human sin for Paul are important, and they have everything to do with all of humanity being uh, caught in adikia, that is, the, that all of humanity participates in the precise character of the corruption of image. That's the problem. And then in addition to that, biblical Israel has the further problem of being caught in unfaithfulness. Um, that is, Israel was supposed to be the embodiment of God's faithfulness in the world. So humanity was supposed to be the embodiment of God's truth in the world. Um, that is his commitment to creation. And Israel is supposed to be the embodiment of God's faithfulness within the world. That is God's commitment to pursue the nations, to bring them back into his love. And those things have gone wrong. Um, so when Paul ponders the solution, dick language comes up and also pistis language comes up. That is God uh, rectifies, um, dikaiazo, the verb, God rectifies uh, the injustice through the faithfulness of Jesus. So, and all of humanity that is in Christ is wrapped up within God's faithfulness, and we are set right. So, the precise nature of what has all gone wrong with humanity is 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 um, transformed and fixed precisely in Christ. It's not just that people are sinners now they're saved. People are, are guilty, now they're forgiven. That's not Paul's discussion. And having that kind of um, shrunken down, uh, shaved down and hollowed out and thinned out kind of gospel of guilt and forgiveness, um, because it misses the, the complexity of how Paul portrays the problem, it also misses the complexity of the solution. And we end up with a paltry way of understanding the problem and a really paltry understanding of God's solution in Christ. And we end up with a gospel that's kind of pathetic, boring, um, and doesn't really cover the richness of the fullness of humanity. So anyway, that's why I'm making a big deal out of that. Uh, to say nothing of how it is that the gospel answers some of the most pressing questions of our time, which have everything to do with justice. Where is the justice in this world? Sings Bono. In uh, his collaboration with uh, Pavarotti in the song they put out, Ave Maria, beautiful tune. Anyway, uh, I indicated a bit ago that in closing, I would address uh, the reality that Paul mentions same gender erotic relations in this, in this passage. This dark narrative of the descent of humanity into degradation. Um, 
and someone wrote me this this last week, wrote a thoughtful email about the tragedy uh, of how this passage is used um, in many uh, Christian communities uh, to condemn uh, LGBTQ plus folks, which is uh, indeed a tragedy. So a couple of thoughts about this. Um, whenever we consider how to use the Bible to address any contemporary issue, um, and in this case, thinking about human sexuality, it is absolutely critical um, that we understand the manner in which Scripture speaks of that issue. Like, what's the rhetorical shape of the passage um, in which this topic or issue is mentioned? You can't just sort of parachute in and um, cite a discrete biblical text, a verse. Do not think in terms of verses when you think of Scripture. They're not just sort of this collection of verses that have, you know, some kind of power pack potential to argue a certain case. These are texts. Versification was added hundreds of years later, over a thousand years later. And um, so don't just parachute in and ignore the communicative situation that that text is situated within. Doing that turns biblical texts into weapons in the culture war, and there are tragically destructive results of that. And very sadly, this has happened to biblical texts that mention same-gender erotic relations. Uh, because Paul refers to these matters within the context of his overall presentation to the Roman Christians, we have to take that communicative situation into account when we think about how to think about human sexuality. And so I'm thinking about, I'm referring to the thrust of the entire letter. So just here are just a few points um, that kind of overview Paul's strategy in this letter, and then I just have a couple of things to say in conclusion. Paul names same-gender erotic relations as degraded human behavior in order to bait a group of Christians in Rome into having an aroused sense of satisfaction in God's judgment on others. That is strategic. Paul names same-gender erotic relations as degraded human behavior in order to bait a group of Christians in Rome into having an aroused sense of satisfaction in God's judgment on other people. And I take that simply from 118 to 32. He does this, a second point, and I take this point from Romans 2 and 3. He does this so that he might then round on them, round on that group, turn on them, and expose the problem of passing judgment. And that is everywhere from 2.1 uh, through uh, chapter 3, certainly the first part of it. Um, also taken from Romans 2 especially, this group, the group that is the target of Paul's rhetoric, sees, it, sees itself as more committed to Scripture than are other Christians. The group that Paul wants to go after. Paul identifies God in Romans as behaving in a way that scandalizes Christians who think they are more committed to Scripture than are others and are therefore worthy of judging other Christians. And I take this from Romans 4, verse 5. Uh, Paul identifies God in some scandalous ways in Romans. The weak are very likely calling the strong ungodly unclean, sinners, unrighteous. And Paul gives as the identity of God, the one who rectifies the ungodly. So God sort of owns this identity with the ungodly, seen in that kind of social perspective, from the perspective of groups that um, have division. And when one group is sort of owning a superior identity over another group, God will always side with and identify himself with um, the shamed and excluded and marginalized and oppressed and judged group. Uh, I take this point from Romans 7, verses 7 to 25. Paul indicates that when Christians pass judgment on other Christians, 
They turn scripture into a weapon in the hands of the cosmic powers of sin and death that aim to destroy the church. I think that's what Romans 7 is all about. A misuse of Torah turns Torah into a weapon in the, in the hands of sin and death as cosmic powers. Uh, Romans 8, 1 and 2, I take this point from there. When Christians stop passing judgment on one another, Scripture is no longer a weapon of, of sin and death to, to destroy the church and becomes the means whereby the Spirit transforms the church. Um, Paul talks there about how uh, the law, Torah, is no longer um, a weapon in the hands of, of sin and death, but now is the law of the spirit of life. It's a tool in the hands of the spirit of life to give life to the churches. Uh, from Romans 14, 1 to 15, 8, I take this point. Paul commands the factions in the Roman church to resist passing judgment on one another's opinions. And finally, the climactic command of, of Romans in Romans 15, verses 7 and 8, is for Christians of differing opinions about lifestyle practices to offer hospitality to one another, just as Christ has embraced both groups. That is the entire aim of Romans, getting to that climactic command to embrace these practices of warm hospitality. So it seems to me that taking the larger thrust of Romans into account would, would just radically reshape the way that Christians speak about human sexuality. I mean, from that climactic command, the church's main task in Romans is to live into its identity as a community of warm hospitality and warm hospitality to the other. The weak see the strong as the sinful other, and Paul exhorts them to offer them hospitality. So, kind of thinking about how we have these conversations in our time, insofar as contemporary churches are more or less completely failing at this basic task of becoming communities of warm hospitality to the other, we know where our work lies. We know that as we are engaging in discussions about human sexuality, I think it's important for us to own this reality. We're doing so as a people who don't have the right to even call themselves the people of God. And I say that because if we are failing at that main task of becoming communities of warm hospitality to people that culture says are other, um, how can we say that we're being responsive to Romans at all or being the kinds of communities that Paul envisions? If Paul's target is Christians who want to be judges, then what does that say about our quest to find texts in Paul that give us ammunition to pass judgment? Well, there's a lot more to say about um, all kinds of issues with regard to human sexuality, but just uh, I find it very helpful, useful, wise, and a manifestation of humility for myself to stay within the bounds of my training, which is in biblical studies, and insist that we use scripture responsibly and properly in a way that's life-giving when we speak about uh, this or any kind of an issue, and certainly to respect the, the rhetorical shape of 118 to 32. Hope you have a great week. Shockingly, the thunderstorm never showed up. There was a 30% chance of it anyway, but instead some lovely sunshine is now sort of flooding the lake in front of me, which reminds me to say, it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.